0: Good morning. Like Austin said, we are in a series in the book of Acts, and we're in week five of that series now. And uh, last week, which is what he just read to you, we saw the early Christian community, and they devoted, they devoted themselves to four things uh, specifically that we see in that uh, passage. It's they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, this week we're going to change uh, a little bit in the focus of things and not look necessarily at the community, but we're going to see something miraculous happen here. And then we're actually going to get a second sermon from the Apostle Peter. And there are some similarities to the sermon that we went over a couple weeks ago from Pentecost, but there are some key differences as well. So first, let's, let's look at Acts chapter 3. That's what we're going to read today is all of Acts chapter 3. And we'll, we'll look at the first couple verses here. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple, to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. So let's get the setting uh, in place here. So you got Peter and John, two of the apostles, two of the, the probably more famous ones, I would say. And they're going to the temple at the time of prayer, which would be about three in the afternoon. And uh, we talked about last week, early Christians still maintained their Jewish practices, right? Because they were Jewish. And so they still went to the temple for worship, uh, like for prayer this time. Uh, You know, there there were three times a day that they would try and pray. And three o'clock was the last part of the the day that they would do that. And it was always good to go to the temple to be able to do this. You, You didn't have to, but it was you know, has looked well upon if you did. And like I said, they're still Jewish people. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But the difference now is that they have a more full picture because they've learned from the Messiah himself and being part of his ministry for the past three years. And now they have the Holy Spirit within them. Uh, leading them. So Peter and John together, uh, we see them go up to the temple, although Peter is the only one that we see speak throughout this whole thing. Now the early Christians, we remember, have a have a habit of working in pairs. Uh, if you remember Jesus sent out the 72 disciples and and another number later uh, in pairs. They'd send them out two by two. And then we're introduced to a man who is described as, as being lame, not lame as in like lame, but lame as in he couldn't walk, you know. I didn't want to like be like lame as in Austin. That would be bad, but I didn't do that, yeah. <laughs> um, but he couldn't walk. And it specifically states that he's been lame from birth. And so this is something he's been dealing with for a long time because we're going to learn in chapter 4 that he's over 40 years old. Now, he is carried to the temple every day to this temple gate named Beautiful. And he goes there so he can beg for um, those who are going into the temple courts. And most likely, it's been a long time that he's been doing this. And so he's got friends and family, maybe, uh, who are carrying him there because he can't get there on his own. And the reason that he's begging at the temple is because people are far more willing to give when they're going to the temple for prayer and for worship. Rabbis taught that there were three pillars of the Jewish faith. There was the Torah, there was worship, and then there was showing kindness or charity. And one one commentator writes that almsgiving was one of the main ways to show kindness, and it was considered a major expression of somebody's devotion to God. And this is kind of an easy way to do it, because these people are kind of lined up outside the gate. You can just toss them some money, and you would be good to go as you go into the worship. So this guy's out there, and, and he's begging. And he couldn't enter into the temple courts because of his condition. That was something that, you know, not a great thing, but he he couldn't go in because of it. Um, and so for a long time, you know, he's, he's day after day outside this court, uh, outside the temple courts begging, outside this what's called the beautiful gate. And we don't exactly know where it is, but it's believed to be here. There's a picture here of uh, the temple complex itself and where that red circle is, is what they believe is where the beautiful gate was. This is a gate that's called Nicanor, the Nicanor Gate. That's a good name, (laughs) Nicanor. And and it really was beautiful. Um, Nine of the ten gates, or ten gates, nine of the ten of them are overlaid with silver and gold. Um, But this tenth gate, this gate here, it's made completely of Corinthian bronze. And it's way more valuable than the other nine because the other ones were just plated where this one is just fully bronze doors. And uh, it's very ornate, very beautiful and everything. So let's keep reading. Acts verse uh, chapter three, verse three. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention expecting to get something from them. How, there's probably a whole lot of people out here that are begging in this area at this time. And this guy, he sees Peter and John. They're going in, and he calls out to them. And they stop, and they pick him out of the crowd. And it's pretty specific. Like, they look straight at him. And they give him his their full attention, right? But then Peter says, look at us. And so the man gives his attention back to them, and he's probably like, all right, I'm going to get something good today get some money. And he is going to get something great, but it's not exactly what he's expecting. Verse six says, then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Now this guy's expecting money, right? And Peter comes out with this. Now he's like, I don't have silver and gold for you, but I do have something, and I will give it to you. And I can see the man. He's probably pretty excited at first. Like, oh, these guys are paying attention to me. This is great. And then Peter tells him this, and his face probably falls a bit because uh, he's not going to get any money. But then maybe he's a little curious about what Peter's going to give him or or confused or might even be angry. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know for sure. We're not given the details of that. I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes At this time, you know, if I'd been begging for years and somebody talks to me directly and only to be like, yeah, I don't have any money, um, yeah, it'd be disappointing to me and might make me a little mad. But then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then it continues in verse 7. Taking him by the right hand, he, Peter, helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. That's cool, I think. I'll guarantee you the last thing that was on this guy's mind as he's being carried to that gate that day was this happening. And Peter doesn't waste any time. He goes over and he takes him by the right hand and he pulls him up. And his feet and his ankles, they grow strong immediately. And he gets up, and it, and it doesn't say that he's, like, testing anything out either. I mean, but he jumps to his feet, and he starts to walk. Now, remember, this is the way he's been since he's born. He's not been able to to do this for over 40 years. And, and the word jumps here is kind of interesting because it, it the, there's another meaning to it. It's like leaps, right? It's the same word that they use for deer. I mean, you think about deer leaping over things, you know, there. it's, I'm amazed at how high deer can jump, and how effortless it looks when they do it. Like, it's, it's absolutely amazing to me, but I'm not sure if this guy was effortlessly leaping, or that he looked very much like a deer, you know, as he's jumping up and around, very excited, but, but it just gives you the idea that, man, there's something about this, and, and, that's what Luke's description here is invoking, but he's also there's also a reference to a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 35 verse 6 where it says then the lame leap then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the lame will leap like a deer and that's what this guy's doing and he goes in with Peter and John into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And remember, he hadn't been able to go into the temple courts before, and now he can't. He's excited, and he, and he draws the notice of the other people around, and they recognize him. They knew him from outside the gate. Verse 9 says, When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And you know what? That would fill me with wonder and amazement too. Verse 11, he continues. While the man was held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. So after they exit the temple courts, they go over to this place called Solomon's Colonnade. They finish up their prayer. They left the temple courts. It's still in the temple complex. And here's a picture. Uh, bring back up our picture here. And you see it's called Solomon's Portico there. And it really is just a like a covered area with a bunch of columns. So Colonnade seems like a pretty good, pretty good name for it. Um, but Peter, he starts to take notice of all these people that are rushing up to them. And they're, they're amazed at this healing. And he uses this opportunity to speak to them. And so we've got Peter's second sermon in as many chapters. Verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? Now the people, they're surprised, right? Like they see this man, there he's walking, he's leaping, he's jumping around, he's praising God. In the temple courts. And they know, you know, wait, this looks like the guy who is outside the whole time. Like, you you kind of get to know the people as you walk by them every day. You know, he's not been able to walk. He's been carried so that he can beg for the for alms, for charity. But now he's up walking around and hanging out with these two guys, Peter and John. So there's got to be something with them, right? And so it's natural to look at, like, well, they must have healed him and they're well, at least they're going to be curious about it and the astonished people are running up to them and peter uses this opportunity again to talk to the people and the first thing he does is he sets the record straight he's like why would this surprise you but also why are you going to look at us like it's our own power or our godliness that made this man walk he immediately takes his, takes the focus off themselves and puts it right where it's supposed to be and that's on jesus And to do that, he goes back to talking about who Jesus is and what these people did to him. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Yikes. Peter uses, Peter starts by using the same way that they, in many times the Old Testament, how they identify God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, right? Because these are the patriarchs for the Jewish faith. From this line came everybody. And from this line would come Jesus, the Messiah, the King. Peter says, our God glorified Jesus. But what did you do? You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. Pilate tried to set him free multiple times. Not because Pilate was a great guy, but because he didn't find any fault with Jesus. They were like, no. He's not our king. Crucify. Peter continues saying, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. Remember Barabbas. Pilate was trying again. It's customary, apparently, to release a prisoner. So Pilate presents Jesus and this other guy named Barabbas. Barabbas was considered a notorious robber, revolutionary, a rebel, and a murderer. Pilate probably thought he had everything figured out. You know, well, should you take this guy who you just called the king of the Jews, or would you rather have a murderer? And they chose the murderer. You killed the author of life, he says. But God raised him from the dead. And he says, we, Peter and John, we are witnesses to this. Again, fulfilling what Jesus' command to them was, right? To be witnesses of his resurrection. And so who healed this man? Verse 16 says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Peter's like, you know, it wasn't me, nor was it by some happenstance that this man got healed. It was by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. That is what healed him. That's who healed him. Peter's like, we were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and now you are all witnesses to this. And then Peter comes to an interesting point, because he kind of softens the blow a bit. Like, he didn't do this in the first sermon, but he does here. In verse 17, he says, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, because they didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. They didn't recognize him as the Messiah. And what they did was wrong. It doesn't take that away, but, but it kind of does soften the blow. But it also takes us back to Jesus' prayer while he was on the cross, when what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Verse 18, he says, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer, because this was God's plan. That's what it had to be. The Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53 is a beautiful passage which prophesies about the suffering of the Lord's servant, of the Lord's Messiah, The whole chapter is pretty eye-opening if you read through it, and and you should. But I just want to read to you from verses 4 through 6, where it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, in Peter's first sermon from chapter 2, you might remember that they asked the people there, they asked him a question. He's, he said, Brothers, what shall we do? And that day, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. For the forgiveness of your sins. And it's not too much different here, although they don't ask him the question, he just rolls with it. But there is a little bit of difference. Verse 19 it says, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that may He may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Repentance, just as a reminder of what it is, is turning away from that old life of sin and rebellion against God, against idolatry. It, it's turning to a life, following God in faith. It's that 180-degree turn. It's you know, You're on that wide path that leads to a wide gate that Jesus says leads to destruction. But it's when you turn from that and find the narrow road, the narrow path that leads to life in Christ. That's repentance. Repent. And where are you turning to? You're turning to God. Then he says why. There's three things. First thing is that so that your sins may be wiped out. Gone. Forever. I don't know that we talk about this enough. Or at least I don't know that we put enough emphasis on this. Your sin is paid for. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He's dying for your sin. He took that penalty that you owed on Himself for your sin, for my sin. And now, in the eyes of God, your sin is gone. Gone. It's like it doesn't exist, it is wiped out because it's forgiven. Psalm 103, verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, I'm going to be like the Apostle Paul for a minute. Very pale pale imitation of Paul. Not that I'm pale, but I am. Um, but I'm going to be like Paul in Romans. and And I just want to, ask the question, well, if our sins are forgiven, does that mean that we can just keep on sinning because they've already been forgiven? No, of course not. Why? Because you're dead to that old life. That's not you anymore. You have a new life in Christ. And you're to live out that life with the Holy Spirit helping you. Helping you live it. That old sin, that old life, that was a life of enslavement but you have been set free. That record of sins, it's not there. It's gone. You don't have to go back to that life anymore. You don't have to live under that. You have been set free. and So live free lives under a true king who loves you and wants what's best for you. So we're turning to God so that our sins may be wiped out. The second thing is that we are turning to God so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This world can get rough, right? Like it is filled with heartache and pain. And we do our best to make it through every day, each and every day. We try our best. But it just feels like sometimes life gets stacked up against us. Just Things get stacked up against us, whether it be, you know, cost of living or or whether it be the stresses at your job or whether it be family issues. You know, it can be a lot. It's difficult. And on top of that, we have the looming threat that is aging and death. That's an uplifting part of the sermon, right? We're all getting old and we're going to die. Like you do, you get older, right? Things don't work as well anymore. And and we lose loved ones, whether it's unexpectedly or whether we were prepared for it. But whichever it is, it still hurts, it's still hard. And so where do we find this rest? Where do we find this times of refreshing? It's got to be in God. It is only found in God. Everything else we chase after without God, it's not going to get you there. You might feel a temporary relief from it, but it does not last. Read the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes sometime. There's a guy who tried everything to find fulfillment and refreshment, and he came away saying that it was all like it's chasing after the wind. It's like trying to grab vapor. You can't get it. Because you're not going to find true rest and refreshment outside of the Lord. That was the conclusion in Ecclesiastes. It's like, in the Lord is where that's found. Everything else is, it's not really there. Now, there's a third thing that will happen when we turn to God. It's that he will send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, and that's Jesus. Because Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to make all things new. Jesus is going to return one day in the future. I don't know what day that is going to be, but we're getting closer every day. And we are his, which means that either we're going to be meeting him in the sky as he returns, or we'll be coming with him. And as we turn to God, he's going to send that Messiah that he appointed for us, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, Peter talks about what's going to happen while we wait for this. It's in verse 21. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, Peter's talking about a time in the future, and and he's talking about that time in between, but he's talking specifically to the people right there, the Jewish people right there. Because he says, God's going to restore everything to the way it's supposed to be. But while they're waiting, there's something that specifically those people were going to have to do. And he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 18 and says that from among the Jewish people, God was going to raise up another prophet like Moses. Moses. And you got to listen to everything he tells you, because anyone who doesn't listen is going to get cut off. That is Jesus. And then he tells them, or reminds them, of the covenant from God to Abraham. And he says, you are heirs of this covenant. And the covenant to Abraham was that through his offspring, all peoples would be blessed. And that's why, that's why Jesus went to the Jewish people first. Yeah, that's why he was sent... To, it was why he sent the apostles to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, first. Because it's through them that the whole rest of the world was going to be blessed. And, and they would hear the good news of his son, Jesus. Now, the story is going to continue. It doesn't stop here, this, this scene. It doesn't end here. Because for the first time since Pentecost, the religious leaders hear the message that Peter is preaching. And they're not happy. And that's going to lead to another really interesting conversation between, this time, Peter and the religious leaders. And we're going to look at that next week. But what I want to do now is, as we kind of wrap it up, bring it home, I want want to look at how we can apply what we've read today, what we've learned, what can we do this week based on this passage. And I think that there are three things that I have, yes. And the first is... Pretty simple. It's just don't overlook what we might think are ordinary encounters with people. Because they're probably not ordinary. Because there are no ordinary encounters with people. I quoted C.S. Lewis once where he says there are no ordinary people. Everyone you're talking to is an eternal being created by God. So we don't want to overlook what we might think is just an ordinary encounter. The second thing is that when something amazing happens, when something miraculous happens, and I, I truly believe it still does, that glory is not ours, but it, it's God's, right? All of it goes to him. You know, we might be there, we might have a privilege of being part of it, but it is, it is God's glory, always. It's his power working through us. The last thing, and I think this one may be the most important, is share the good news of Jesus with somebody. Because you might be the person that day that God has put there that they need to hear that from. No ordinary encounters. And I say that with this passage because this is a reminder that we have been set free from that slavery to sin. We're no longer in those shackles anymore. We are free from it. And we've tasted the the freedom. And so don't we want to bring other people with us? Don't we want to set everybody free or bring people along with us? To know what we know, to feel what we feel. Why wouldn't we talk about the thing that is or really should be the most important thing in our lives? Why not? What's the worst that they could say? I've had people tell me this all, all the time when you ask somebody a question. It's like, well, what's the worst they could say? No, I'm not interested. Still terrifies me, but it's still a good thing to think about. Like, They're going to say, okay, well, no, not interested. Great, fine. And then you pray for them because maybe that's a seed that you planted or maybe it's a seed you're watering that somebody else already planted. We've got the best news ever. And we know where you can find freedom. So let's share that with somebody this week. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you have given us the greatest news in your son, Jesus, to come and and to die on a cross for our sin so that we could be set free. And you have wiped away our sins, Lord. And that is so hard for, for me to wrap my mind around. Because I, I want to try and hold on to them. I want to try and, and feel bad about them to, to mourn my sin. I know that I'm free, but sometimes I I just don't want to act like it. But Lord, you have told us that as far as from the east is from the west, you've removed our sin from us. You don't see it anymore. You see Jesus in our lives. Father, that was a reminder I needed this week. And I'm sure some others here today need that reminder as well. We are not defined by our sin. We are defined by our Savior. And we are so thankful for that. Father, we take the time now in our service to come around the table to remember the sacrifice that he made to make that all possible. we take the bread representing his body. We take the juice representing his blood. The cup of the new covenant. And we remember. And we rejoice. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.